Our scripture reading for the sermon comes from Genesis chapter 23. Give your attention, if you would, to the reading of God's word. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron of in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Father, we turn to you in this moment, in this place, and look to you, the author of life. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know the hope to which you have called us what are the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurably greatness of your power toward us who believe? In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. Some of you have joined us in this room over recent weeks in a little short series uh, about God, pain, and suffering. And one of the phrases, one of the truths that we have landed upon in the book that we are reading together is this. When pain and suffering come upon us, we learn, we finally see that not only are we not in control of our lives, but we never were. That's something Abraham learns here. It's something that we all learn somewhere along the way. A crisis, by definition, is something that upsets the apple cart or what is the norm or what is standard. It comes sometimes around the corner that we do not see coming. By definition, a crisis has, has been stated as an extremely dangerous or difficult situation that creates instability. You've been there. I mean, you've had a crisis. You may be in the midst of a crisis. Um, it doesn't matter how hard we plan, how, how well we save, how clear we can anticipate. Crises happen. Uh, something that is bigger than we saw coming. And that's what Abraham is dealing with again. It was, Sarah was advanced in age. So on the one hand, you might say that, Abraham, you saw this one coming. And in a sense, Abraham likely knew that one of them would die first, not knowing who it would be. But it is a crisis nonetheless. Think about this for a moment. Sarah, Abraham's soulmate, for this epic journey that began in a place called Ur and went to the land of Canaan and then down to Egypt and back, and they've been wandering in and around the promised land together. And we read in verse 1, Sarah lived. In verse 2, Sarah died. It's that plain. We know where it happened. It happened in a town that was later to be known as Hebron, which played a significant role in the life of Israel. It's the place where David would one day be crowned king. It's a significant place, 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And we're told in the land of Canaan is where this happened. And for Abraham and for us, that should signal something in the land of Canaan was where the story really took shape for Abraham. It was the land that had been laid out before him. We'll come back to that in a moment. But, but it's a significant part of the story that this takes place in the land of Canaan. And what we see is that Abraham learns how to view his loss in the light of the promise of God. That's where we start today, that we learn to view our loss like Abraham did in light of the promise of God. 
And whatever loss, whatever crisis, whatever it is that you thought you had and now you don't, or whatever you thought would be and has not developed, whatever loss, it's to think through that loss and to view it in light of the promise of God. Frankly, that's why we have some psalms that do start with the words, Why God? How long, O God? Because there is this promise of God that doesn't always match the life that we live in this world. And sometimes we're trying to connect dots that don't seem to connect. There's this promise. And then there's my experience. Here's why it's a dilemma. It's why it's a real loss for for Abraham. The dilemma that he has is not only does he need to place now to, to lay this body in the ground. But what the dilemma is and the true loss for him is not, I've not only lost my wife, but I've lost my wife without a place. That was the promise, wasn't it? The promise was, Abraham, this is land is for you. And now prematurely, at age 107, premature in the sense that there is no land yet, Sarah dies. And so there's his dilemma. He has an inheritance, but as of yet, no land. And he views his loss in light of the promise, and it leads him forward. It first leads him to to ponder the, the situation and then to act upon the situation. And that's what we come to next because we are to not only view our loss in light of the promise, we are to order our steps in line with the promise. And as you think about the loss and crises in your own life, seeing them through the lens of God's promise, now ordering your response to the loss ordering your steps. What do you now do? What do I do now? So I'm going to order my steps with Abraham in line with the promise. And that's what he's doing when he he goes to the people of the village, of the city. He goes to the Hittites. Did you notice how often the word Hittite appeared in that little passage we read? It was like nine times. Uh, We're supposed to understand that this is the Hittites that he's dealing with. This is a people, this is a northern people that have located somewhere south of Jerusalem, probably due to the trade that they had they entered into over the, over the years. So there's an outpost of this northern people now below Jerusalem, and that's where this happens. So Abraham goes to the Hittites and says, verse 4, I am a sojourner. And foreigner among you. Uh, he hasn't said the words until they recognize, well, you're a, so, you're a sojourner, a foreigner, but you might be a good neighbor because they talk with him about this. You're a, prince of, you're a prince among us. So they're looking at Abraham, this wealthy man, and said, and, and conclude that let's talk. Let's figure something out here because we might benefit by your partnership in some ways. But when he says, I'm a resident and alien, what goes with that is the reality that ordinarily that excluded him from any ability to own land. The resident alien was not eligible to be a property owner. 
Part of that was because if it was arable land that was useful, it needed to stay within the tribe, and it didn't go to outsiders. That was their self-protective, self-perpetuating way of living. So the only way you might own some land in those days was to, was to marry in to the tribe or into the village. But that's not the case for Abraham. And so the negotiations begin. Verses 3 through 15, and we won't read all of those again, but what you see, and I'll try to unpack it here with the time that we have, there's, there's three stages to this negotiation. And that's really what it is. There's some negotiating going on. Not the kind of bartering. If you'll notice, it's not the bartering that we sometimes see in this parts of the world, but there are negotiations. It starts with Abraham's request. He makes a simple, straightforward request to the Hittites, to the gathered people in public at the city gate. He comes to them and says, give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead. He asks for a tomb, they say, they think. And so they offer him a tomb. You are the prince among us. We would love to give you any of our tombs. Pick one out, any of our tombs. And what Abraham comes back with is the request for something specific. So he has had his eyes on something, apparently, and he knows that Ephron owns a cave in a field that is the precise and right place for what he has in mind. And he says, can you ask Ephron to give me that cave and that land, the field that is in it? And he's sitting in the crowd. So Ephron hears his name and his ears perk up and he says, oh, well, this could be a real opportunity for me here uh, because I own something that he wants. What could I get for this property? He says, well, I will give you this land and... and um, the reason that, that Abraham likely backs off of any gift and says, no, I want to purchase land is so that somewhere down the road, Ephraim's descendants couldn't debate and go back and say, no, this is in our name and this resident alien doesn't belong here. This is all taking place, by the way, at the city gate in public. So what is about to, uh, to unfold is public record it goes on the books, so to speak. Everybody has watched this transaction take place. And now Ephraim has offered to give the land. And Abram says, no, you named a price and that is the price I will pay. And when he named a price, he, he reached for the stars. He, he gave him a very un, uh, unthinkable price for a piece of land of this small. For comparison, David would later buy the temple site on which the temple was built in Jerusalem for 50 shekels. And Ephraim wants 400 for a cave. An artisan in those days, a laborer, would earn 10 shekels a year. So they would not earn this much in their lifetime. Ephron is about to hit the Powerball. 
And as Abraham negotiates this deal and says, no, I want purchase, I want title, I want public record of this, Ephraim, as you can imagine, the look on his face as Abraham pulls out shekel after shekel after shekel, 400 shekels. And as Ephraim's eyes get big and his bank account enlarges, the transaction takes place, and Ephron is the winner. I'm guessing it's a story he told once or twice. You wouldn't believe what I got for that cave. You remember that cave and that field and those trees? You wouldn't believe what I got for that piece of property. And every time Ephron tells that story again, the public record becomes more and more ironclad that the transaction has occurred. It's clear title. It's uncontestable. Bought at a high price, but worth every shekel in Abram's mind. What's going on here? <clears throat> Let me see if I can pull this together as we move forward here. Sarah has died in the land of Hebron, the heart of the promised land, without receiving the promised land. Nothing to her name, nothing to Abram's. But Abraham was so sure that this land would one day be his that he wanted Sarah's bones there when they came back for ownership. That's really what's transpired here. Abram's tenacity was demonstrated in his his tenacity demonstrates his faith in God's promise. And there is a, a back and forth here, right? He continues to lean into it. There's something clear that he wants because tenacity is the mark of faith. The faith that we have in the one who made us and the one to whom we belong is tenacious. It, it pursues, it takes hold of, it clings. And that's what Abram is doing. There, there's a tenacity of his faith that shows up in this transaction. And here's why. You remember back a few chapters ago when Lot and Abram, by that name at that time, split? Abram uh, watched his brother Lot choose the fertile valley. And Abram was left with the hill country. God shows up to Abram and says, Abram, look as far as you can see. As far as you can see and beyond, that's the land that I will give to you. That valley is fertile, but, but the rest is yours. I give you this land. And from that point forward, Abraham was seeking a homeland. As this story unfolds, his descendants will be buried in this place. You see, that's what the, what the field and the purchase was about. It wasn't simply a cave for, for one Sarah. It was a landing spot and a first claim on the promised land. It's striking that the only land that Abraham ever owned in the land of promise, he bought. And what he bought was a burial ground, a cemetery plot. That should say something to us. That the only land he ever owned 
was a cemetery plot. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the promise was given and the promise continued. The rest of the Old Testament stories that unfolds out of Genesis uh, in, in 15, we, we did hear God say these words to Abram. These will be familiar to you. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you a land to possess, this land to possess. In Exodus 23, little by little, I will drive them, the occupants, out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. In Leviticus 20, but I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God. And Numbers 33, and you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess. It's a recurring theme, and by the time we get to Deuteronomy, it becomes a dominant theme. That's what De De Deuteronomy is about. It's the, it's the moving in to this promise that is before them, the land, the land, the land. But the energizing promise also came with a sobering reality. And it was Abraham's descendants that heard this and we hear this and we live it out. We understand that I have, I'm giving you this land, my people. But know that it's not because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. And what we learn is that stubborn dies hard. Not only were they stubborn they remained stubborn, and tragically, even though they gained the land at a point, they lost it because of the stubbornness of their heart and the reality that they began to care more about the land than the one who gave it. There's a little bit of that stubbornness in me and you as well. A stubbornness that, that loses its way, that blinds us. You know, one of the things about a crisis is it either, it either blurs your vision or it strengthens your, your view. It either blurs what you can see or it enables you to truly see. And that's what happened to Israel. And that's what happens to us. That a crisis, whether it's small or big, or maybe it's just the stubbornness of my heart, that creates the personal, interpersonal crisis in my own life. M many of my crises are my own doing. <laughs> I've learned. And maybe that's true for you too. But the crisis brings something front and center, and that's actually what begins to happen with Abraham. Because the crisis of faith, you know, he had, he had just been faced with the crisis of faith with the prospect of losing his son, Right? We just were there. Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah to be the sacrifice. He had to ponder the reality that he was about to lose his son. And now he is faced with the reality that he has lost his wife. He has swapped one crisis of faith for another. And we do that too. We swap one thing for another until the crisis itself clears the fog away that we begin to see things as they really are. This past, um, you know, when, when you live through the death of a loved one, like some of you have, and some of you are, it can blur your vision. 
or it can clarify it. It can clarify what is really true. Somewhere along the way, in the burying of his wife, Abraham, in pursuit of a land that would never be his own, (laughs) a light comes on. And the reason we know this is that Hebrews talks about this and says, talks, helps us understand what Abraham and, and the life to follow really is like. And what we learn is that Abraham not only views his loss in light of the promise of God, he not only orders his steps in line with the promise of God, but he fixes his gaze on the God of promise. That's golden. That's life-giving. That's clarifying. It's where this text takes us. Because we begin to see that with all of the arrangements for a funeral, Abraham still has something else in front of him. Here's what we read in Hebrews 11. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God surprises us with his promises. He surprised the life out of and into Abraham on the top of a mountain (laughs) with Isaac as a potential sacrifice. And God surprises us. But in the same way, he surprises Abraham with this story and this pursuit of the land. You see, the land was always pointing to something else. The promise of land to Israel, the promise made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and the pursuit from Genesis through Deuteronomy and into Joshua in the occupation of the land and even the return to the land after two exiles by Assyrians and Babylonians and they're back, read it in Ezra and Nehemiah. You read the return to the land, but the land was always about something else. Which is why the New Testament picks this up, not only Hebrews 11 saying that they desire a better country, it's because a better country, another country, is our hope, is the goal, it is the promise. The land in the Old Testament was simply a word picture for Israel to understand. You know, it's not in the trees that you're climbing and the fruit that you're picking, it's another land, it's a greater land. It's a heavenly city that is your hope. The ground that Abraham had to stand on in light of his loss, the ground that he had to stand on was never under his feet. It was the God of promise. The land that what we have, the foundation upon which we have to stand is never something as simple as soil or streams or hills or valleys. 
as beautiful as those are, and as assuredly we can expect that those will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So save your climbing shoes, your walking sticks, your backpacks. The world into which we live may very well be filled with those things. But it is the promise of a world to come, a heavenly city. That's why Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are an alien. You are a stranger in this world. You're an exile. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, Our citizenship is in heaven. This fallen world will one day be fully cleansed and redeemed, and then we, were, we, were, we can step out of the, with the world and its godliness, godless influences. Because you see, the, the mark of a true believer, starting with Abraham and moving to you, the heart of a true believer has always been that they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And longing for heaven, the way Abraham longed for a burial place for Sarah, a longing for heaven that orders our steps heavenward, is the signature of the believing soul. There are reasons, but the reality is, to be honest, sometimes we long for other things, right? We long for so much else. If you were to list the top 10 longings of your heart, where would heaven be? I hope it would make my list. <laughs> the older I get, the more it makes my list. But tell the 15-year-old to long for heaven. I want to live first. I want to know what it is to... To, to live and do this and that. I want to do everything that this world has to offer. There's nothing wrong with that kind of desire, by the way. To experience what there is to experience. To want to know what it is like to, to love and be loved. To know what it's like to do what you long to do. There's nothing wrong with that desire until those become the ultimate desires. When those are the desires that we cling to with white knuckles and say, no, I will not, I cannot, I do not long for heaven until and unless. And there's where we step into some murky waters that are frankly, friends, a dangerous place to live. Thomas Watson, an old <clears throat> Puritan, put it this way. An ignorant man looks at a star and appears to him like a little silver spot. But the astronomer, who has his instrument to judge the dimension of a star, knows it to be many degrees bigger than the earth. So a natural man hears of the heavenly country, that it is very glorious, but it is at a great distance. And because he has not a spirit of discernment, the world looks bigger in his eyes. But such are spiritual artists who have the instrument of faith to judge heaven 
and say it is by far the better country and they will hasten there with the sails of desire. Do you hear what he's saying? If we could only see accurately, if we could only see heaven for what it is, the land of promise and the promise of the land is simply a foretaste of a better country. And if we could see that for what it is, we would sail there with desire. It would be at the top of the list. So that Paul can say, for me to live, to die is to gain Christ. That's the world for which we were made. It is the world to which we belong. That's why Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, including earth. <laughs> For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Abraham didn't know that whole story. But he had learned to view his loss in light of the promise of God. He had learned to order his steps in line with the promise of God. And he had learned to fix his gaze on the God of promise. In verse 17, we read about, again, we read about Machpelah to the east of Mamre. That, that actually appears more than once here, right? There's so many details in here. But let me tell you a little bit about this. Today... You can go there. In fact, you can take a tour of the site known as the Cave of the Patriarchs. There's a building there built by, apparently, by Herod. Apparently, it's the last standing building in that, that was built by King Herod 2,000 years ago or more. It's there. In the 12th century, the Crusaders took control and made that building into a church. 700 years ago, Muslims conquered Hebron and declared that same structure a mosque and forbade entry to the Jews who were not allowed past the seventh step on a staircase outside the building. But several years ago, underneath the floors, there was discovered a cave. A double cave is actually the terminology. The word that describing the town means double. And for all indications, the place where Abraham buried Sarah. Also the place that we read at the end of Genesis... When Jacob commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre. In the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah and his wife there. And I buried Leah, says Jacob, the field and the cave that is in it that were bought from the Hittites. 
So it's maybe no wonder that tradition has it that Caleb, one of the spies that went into the land, took a personal detour. This is tradition. Personal detour that when he went in to spy out the land, he went to Hebron to pray at the side of where his forefathers and mothers were buried. It's why, according to one Jewish scholar, after the Western Wall in Jerusalem, this cave of the patriarchs has remained throughout history the most sacred monument of the Jewish people. It's why over 300,000 people visit that site today. Between services, one of us mentioned the fact that they had spent some time traveling and various parts of the world, and a lot of trips to tombs and burial sites was pretty common. Only to note that other than loved ones and family members, we don't do that. There aren't many tombs or burial sites, maybe a veteran's cemetery on Veterans Day. But as a rule, it's different for us. You see, Christians no longer look to this sepulcher in Hebron, although we can claim it by faith as well. Abraham is our forefather. But we look to another tomb, not, not purchased but borrowed because it would not be needed for long. I guess in a sense you could say that there was a purchase price, a very high one, because the empty tomb that we mark and celebrate not once a year but every Sunday was bought at a high cost, the very life of the Son of God but not for long. Because the one who entered that tomb left it. And with it, the promise of God to redeem a broken world. The Lamb of God who was slain for the forgiveness of sin came out of that tomb and it's to him that we look. And because we belong to Christ and look to a better country, a country of which, friends, we have full title. Incontestable. Not because all the Hittites heard it, but because the God who made this world ordered it and preserves it. And there is an inheritance kept for you, Peter says, in heaven. And you, by faith, are being guarded for it. There's an inheritance kept for you. And you are being kept for the inheritance. Through the finished work of Christ. To whom we belong and to whom we look. You see, like Israel, we are stubborn. Like Israel, we need a redeemer. Like Abraham, we are in search of a better country. And like Abraham, we can die with full assurance of faith. 
because of the God of promise fulfills his promise. And that tomb is empty. And heaven is filled as he brings his sons and daughters, his brothers and sisters into the world to come. Lord, do that work in us. Would you open our eyes to help us whose eyes are blurry at times due to crises of our own making, but whose vision is sharpened when we begin to see things as they really are and as you have declared them to be. So with the eyes of faith, we take hold tenaciously of you today, the one who is good, the one who is merciful, the one who is strong, the God of the empty tomb. Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing.